Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Coming up, we hear from lawmakers and residents about efforts to pass recreational marijuana in our state. But first, we want to talk about what happened in our nation's capital. Joining us now on the phone is 4th District Congressman Jim Himes. Congressman Himes, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Uh, Americans woke up and saw that Congress uh, returned uh, to the Capitol and certified President-elect Biden's victory. This was just hours after a pro-Trump mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was unbelievable watching what was happening in our nation's capital. I can't imagine what it was like to be inside that House chamber. Can you tell our listeners, Congressman Himes, what you experienced yesterday afternoon and evening? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad you started the way you did, because um, starting around uh, midnight, we, we got back to business. We demonstrated that uh, even a violent attack on the um, on, on the Capitol would not stop the Congress from doing what the Constitution said it had to do, uh, which was, of course, to certify the uh, election of, um, of Joe Biden. But um, yes, the... Um, there was a 20-minute period that was really uh, enormously, enormously anxious. Uh, we were in the middle of the debate on the state of uh, Arizona on the House floor, um, and to compress uh, 20 minutes of anxiety into a very brief summary, um, you know, they locked the room down. It was clear that uh, that these insurrectionists had uh, had penetrated the Capitol, which, by the way, is worthy of a whole long, uh, longer discussion on the massive mm-hmm. security failure that occurred. Um, they asked us to get the gas masks out from under the seats because uh, they had used tear gas in the rotunda. Um, they actually, in the sort of most nervous moment, uh, announced that they would evacuate us and asked us to stay down uh, because they were afraid that there might be shooting. Um, at that point, officers had their weapons drawn, and there's a what I think will become an iconic photo of um, of uh, the Capitol Police uh, using furniture uh, to barricade an entry to the House floor and with their weapons pointed uh, in the direction of the door. Uh, fortunately, shortly thereafter, we were taken out uh, and, and uh, held along with another uh, roughly 100 members of Congress in a, in a big conference room um, for a couple of hours. Mm. Uh, many of your colleagues uh, have commended the Capitol Police uh, because there are many of them that um, also help protect you and your colleagues. But you just referenced that there was a massive failure in security. How did this happen, Congressman Himes? Well, that, of course, will be a very big question. And it's important to make a distinction here. Um, there were individual acts of real heroism on the part of officers uh, yesterday of the Capitol Police, and we work with these people every day. Uh, they are good people. They are competent police officers. And uh, again, uh, they were in an unprecedented situation and performed well. Um, but overall, uh, the notion that a sort of uh, a disorganized, uh, unruly band of people could so quickly get into the Capitol uh, and threaten lawmakers uh, and get into the Speaker's office 
where there is all sorts of sensitive information and computers and that sort of thing is um, is a massive, massive failure of security. And, uh, you know, I made reference to them, you know, piling furniture in front of doors. Uh, we spend tens of millions of dollars every year to keep that location, one of the most sensitive locations in the country, secure. Uh, and when I saw them piling furniture against the door, I really wondered, my God, what have we, uh, what have we been spending our money on here? Uh, but I, I, it kills me to imagine what uh, more organized, whether it's uh, you know foreign terrorist groups or you know uh, wacky militias or others who actually do have some training and tactics and capability, might think that they might be able to pull off now as a result of yesterday's security failure. I wanted to ask you your reaction to President Trump's statements. I know last night his social media director had to tweet since he's been, uh, his account had been uh, banned or closed down for several hours. And in that statement, the president says, even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, which we know is uh, not true, nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. I wanted to ask you, Congressman Himes, uh, your response to what President Trump said to this mob before they descended on the Capitol, and what happens now? Well, I mean, let's not sugarcoat this. The president promoted a violent insurrection against his, uh, against the United States government. Um, and let's not parse words. Um, you know, we've been watching Donald Trump for four years now. We know who this man is. We know he's a deeply, deeply uh, wounded uh, and malevolent individual who cares about nothing other than his own uh, welfare and, and, and his own image amongst his uh, his supporters. And uh, yesterday that uh, that uh, that that manifested itself in an in, in an insurrection against the United States of America. Um, you, you know, I've I've been watching this man for four years, uh, so I'm not surprised. And, and there, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, "Oh, should the president go on TV and speak?" And I said, "No, my God, don't let that happen. We know what he will say. It would have been worse than the sort of bizarre statement that you reference, um, and it could have led to more violence." So, you know, now the question is. Um, I think twofold. One, what happens in the next two weeks in which he remains president? Um, and, and, and sadly, I think the answer to that question is nothing, I, and maybe that, at least with respect to him. Uh, but, but there's a larger conversation to be had. Uh, it was really disheartening to go back to the floor after this insurrection, after this violence, and to hear House member after House member after House member uh, repeat the lies um, that the president has been spinning for the last two months. Uh, the lies that, of course, ginned up millions of Americans to believe that the election had been fraudulent. You know, it's a perfectly circular, malignant thing that happened, right? For two months, the president of the United States and his supporters lied about what happened in the election. And lo and behold, tens of millions of Americans are now unsure whether the election was secure because they listened to the president, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> all evidence notwithstanding. Um, and then um, personally ambitious uh, politicians uh, like Ted Cruz and like Josh Hawley decide that this is a remarkable and historical platform for them uh, to demagogue. And, and why do they do it? They do it because, oh my goodness, some of my constituents have concerns. Well, of course they do. They've been lied to for two, uh, for two months. And, I, and you know, I, I really hope that America can take a step back and, and ask themselves, you know, is, is this really the way we want to govern? And do we want to reward the people that, that were complicit in leading to yesterday's mm -hmm. violence? 
Congressman Heim, some of your colleagues have talked about impeaching the president. Others have spoken about invoking the 25th Amendment. Uh, your colleague, uh, Congressman Larson, says he supports uh, the removal of the present president immediately. Do you believe the president should be removed before January 20th? Well, uh, there needs to be accountability for what happened. Um, you know, and, and it, though it seems like a million years ago, it was really only a couple of days ago that the president uh, committed what appeared to be a federal crime and a crime in the state of Georgia by threatening uh, local officials if they didn't fraudulently t- say that he'd won the election. So um, there must be accountability. Again, what happened yesterday was a violent insurrection against the United States government. And two weeks from now, we can't be chuckling to ourselves about, oh, my goodness, what a silly thing it was that Donald Trump did. There must be accountability. Uh, As a practical matter, the Congress is adjourned as of 4 a.m. last night. Um, As a practical matter, the probability that he is impeached by the Congress is pretty close to zero. Uh, I won't editorialize around whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because I'm operating at about two hours of sleep right now. but um, and, and I have zero faith whatsoever that the people who are close to the president that could invoke the 25th Amendment um, have been shaken from their cult-like devotion. It was impressive to see Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence, who uh, has for four years now been an adoring supporter of the president, actually undertake his constitutional duties yesterday, even though it knew he, it would cost him his relationship with the president. But I just don't see Michael Pompeo or Betsy DeVos or other cabinet secretaries in in, in sufficient numbers, uh, deciding that we shouldn't take the risk of another two weeks of this kind of madness out of the Oval Office. That's disappointing to hear, but what message does that send to this mob about what they are capable of doing to this country, Congressman? Well, you know, I, I went to the MAGA rally the night before the uh, the insurrection, and um, dismantling the um, package of lies that has sort of become a religion uh, for a lot of these people um, is going to be a long process. And if Donald Trump were impeached again, that would simply validate their belief that the deep state is and always has been out to get Donald Trump. Uh, it's, a, it's a much longer and I think more challenging thing that we're going to need to do to in some ways deprogram people. And I, I heard it myself. I mean, you know, Donald Trump as the inheritor of Jesus Christ to restore this country to the greatness that it was once was in the, in the image of Jesus Christ, Alex Jones screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, you know, Roger Stone peddling uh, conspiracy theories. This, it's going to take longer <laughs> than just two weeks to, uh, to deprogram uh, the cult of Donald Trump. And, and, and by the way, we all, I think, have a role in doing that. You know, uh, what has been coughed up uh, yesterday um, was the result, I think, of, of, of many years of, of not just complicity by Republicans, but of complicity of elements of the media. Um, you know, we probably all have some uh, um, uh, self-reflection to do um, to, about how uh, what occurred yesterday occurred. Uh, you mentioned that, again, um, an investigation needs to happen. I know uh, Senator Murphy, a ranking member uh, who oversees Capitol Police funding, uh, looking at how the Capitol was breached so quickly. But I wanted to ask you, Congressman Himes, uh, something else that's really stark uh, to uh, many Americans watching yesterday. Well, the way that these domestic terrorists were treated, the fact that they were able to get into uh, the U.S. Capitol, the fact that there have been few arrests, and they look at what happened during all of those protests for racial du- justice in our country, 
country and the difference in response from law enforcement. What do you say to our listeners about that? Yeah, it, it, it's one of the things that haunted me yesterday, um, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. It would be easy to say things quickly. That's never a good idea when you're talking about race in this country. But let me say something quickly at risk of, uh, of, of, of maybe not being as precise uh, as I should be. Um, you know, as a, a privileged white man, uh, I struggle to feel and understand what white privilege looks like. And Candidly, over the years, I've really thought about what exactly is that? What does it mean? What are its attributes? Well, when you look at the difference between the uh, almost science fiction-like Star Wars Death Star security response to the BLM, Black Lives Matter, protest in Washington, you know, with armored uh, cars and troops, uh, you know, lined up in ranks, uh, on, at the, you know, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and then you compare that to the reaction and the total lack of preparation uh, yesterday, um, boy, that is one of the more stark illustrations about of white privilege that I've ever seen. When black people are angry and expressing their opinion, the response is one thing and dramatic. When white people, and I am here to tell you that it was all white people yesterday, are angry and expressing their opinion, the reaction could not be more different. Hmm. Is this something you hope to work on with your colleagues, uh, Congressman? Well, you know, a security breach is something you work on with your colleagues. The um, the uh, problem of race in this country, um, somehow working on it with my colleagues, doesn't feel adequate to the task. Um, you know, I, if there's one silver lining to the protests of uh, of and the brutal violence against uh, people like uh, George Floyd this last summer, it, it is that we have all um, been shown uh, what I was just describing, which is the just ongoing um, challenges that we have in making sure that our black brothers and sisters uh, are not uh, shut out, uh, that they are not treated the way they have been treated for 240 years. So working with my colleagues is important, but it's a very small, small part of the uh, effort that must be made there. Last question, Congressman. Uh, Inauguration Day, uh, what, 13 days away. Could this happen again? Well, um, since yesterday, I would have told you that I couldn't imagine what happened happening. Um, I'm going to be humble and say, of course, it could happen again. Um, And, uh, um, you know, the inauguration, of course, is inherently a much more challenging uh, security problem because it doesn't happen uh, in what I thought was a well-guarded building. It happens outside. Um, and so, yes, I do think that, uh, or I do think and I hope that there are uh, lots of very um, uh, <laughs> competent professionals giving that some thought. But I, I really do worry. I mean, as you know, I sit on the Intelligence Committee, and I really do worry about the lesson that was taken yesterday. You know, whether it's a domestic militia in the hills of West Virginia uh, or a terrorist group uh, watching CNN from Quetta, Pakistan, there are people who have thought, my God, I never imagined it would be so easy uh, to get a dagger into the very heart of the United States government. I I know I said last question, but I have to ask, is this a prelude of more things to come in our country? Uh, We have a president-elect that will take office January 20th, uh, but the damage has been done, Congressman. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm an optimist, but but I'm also a student of history. Um, this country, though, we sometimes take uh, uh, one step forward and two step back, two steps back. We make progress. We do make progress over time. Um, that's just not an arguable proposition. Um, sometimes it's too slow. Always it's too slow. Um, but no, I'm an optimist. And look, I think that President-elect Joe Biden is the man for the hour. And I don't say that as a Democrat saying it about another Democrat. Joe Biden has spent his entire career reaching out to people who disagree with him. Um, and, uh, and, and Joe Biden, I think, uh, understands um, a lot of the challenges that are in front of this country. And Joe Biden is not a um, psychologically wounded um uh, narcissist uh, the way Donald Trump is. So, no, I'm hopeful. I think January 20th is a new start. Um, we do have a lot to work on in terms of our civic dialogue. Um, I refuse to believe that the 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump are all like the people that we saw breach the Capitol yesterday. Um, and, and um, you know, they, they um, while we need to condemn um the activities that occurred yesterday and condemn so much of what the legacy of Donald Trump is, uh, we also need to listen to each other. And so I think we've all got a role in making sure that yesterday is the sort of, um, um, you know, uh, pinnacle of the horridness um, of the last four years and that it gets better from here. Jim Himes, again, is the congressman for the 4th District here in Connecticut. Congressman Himes, we appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue with the show we had planned for the hour, and that is a conversation about recreational marijuana. Stay with us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel broadcasting remotely. So one of the questions we wanted to ask before what happened yesterday in D.C. was, will 2021 be the year legal marijuana takes off across our country? 11 states and D.C. already allow recreational marijuana, and we know legalization is pending in several other states, including New Jersey, where voters approved it recently. But what could recreational marijuana look like in our state? Today, we talk with lawmakers about an issue which is more complicated than you may think. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I wanted to play a clip from our governor, Ned Lamont. This is what he said about recreational marijuana during his State of the State address on Wednesday. Sports betting, internet gaming, legalized marijuana, they're all happening all around us. Let's not surrender these opportunities to out-of-state markets, or even worse, to underground markets. So it sounds like the governor is on board with seeing recreational marijuana in our state. Joining us now to talk about efforts to legalize on Zoom, State Representative Michael D'Agostino. He represents Hamden and co-chair of the General Law Committee. Representative D'Agostino, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Also with us, State Senator Gary Winfield, who represents New Haven and West Haven, and he's co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Senator Winfield, thank you for coming on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
So I'll start with you, Representative D'Agostino. Uh, we know medical marijuana has been legal in our state uh, since 2012. There's been a push to legalize recreational marijuana for several years now. Uh, where do you stand on this issue? Well, uh, obviously, I support it. I mean, my committee is in charge of regulating the medical cannabis industry in Connecticut, which, as you noted, has existed for about 10 years now and has grown exponentially. Uh, and it's a natural extension of that to take that regulatory environment, that robust regulatory environment that we have, and extend it to recreational cannabis. And so talk about uh, the primary motivator uh, to get this done. Do you believe it needs to happen this year, Representative? I think I think it needed to happen last year, quite frankly, that and sports betting and some other things were, as the governor correctly stated, we're, we're falling behind on opportunities. Uh, and I should note, it, it's not just economic, obviously. I mean, I'm sure Gary will touch on this as well, but there's obviously an equity component to this, but there's also a public safety component uh, as well. And, and that sounds a little odd, maybe, but if you think about it, if all our surrounding states have legalized uh, what you're going to do uh, by being an island is secure a black market here in Connecticut, uh, where we've seen in the last couple of years uh, overdoses and, frankly, uh, some deaths with the fentanyl-spiked uh, cannabis that you've, that you've seen out there in the black market. Uh, you're going to lose revenue, and you're also going to, by the way, um, lose out on on impacting the opioid crisis. It's it's well documented in states with legalization that. Um, opioid addiction has gone down, and uh, you're just going to encourage the use of these other more dangerous uh, drugs. Uh, in addition to all of that, of course, lose revenue to uh, surrounding states. So uh, there's there's just a myriad number of reasons to to have done this and why we should do this. Senator Winfield, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, what is the primary motivator for, for lawmakers to get this done this year? Um, I, I think that that answer actually varies from lawmaker to lawmaker. I think that the, uh, and I've been joined by my child, so you will hear him in the background. But um, no problem. I think that if, if, if you ask um, uh, many legislators, the fact that there is revenue to come from it, it, it is a huge part of this. But I think as Mike suggests, um, there's another part of this. Uh, many of us feel as though um, cannabis should have never been uh, made the, the demon drug that it has been and uh, made illegal and certainly people harken back to uh, the Nixon administration and some of the things that were said there about why that happened. So um, I think there are uh, various reasons, but I, I think the most important thing that we can talk about um, outside of the machinations of this is the equity mm -hmm. part. Um, and that's the part that I'm hoping we get right because because we have been uh, working on this piece of legislation for a long time. And all of the stuff that we're going to talk about this year in my committee or in Mike's committee or in James Maroney's committee, we've already had a conversation about. The part we haven't gotten right is the part on equity. Hmm. So I'm going to ask Representative D'Agostino uh, to pick up on that. So let's talk more about uh, the machinations, but also uh, as, as Senator Winfield has his little one with him. Can you talk about this equity question, how it has evolved in the discussions before lawmakers over the years, Representative D'Agostino? Sure. And I think about it, and to further to Gary's point, this you will get different answers depending on who you speak to. And that's one of, been one of the problems with passing this. And, and as a, just sort of a footnote to that, I'll note, you, you hit your head on the machinations point. You hit the nail on the head in your introduction when you said um, 
New Jersey just voted to approve it. In every other state that's done this, it's been by a public referendum. And I have no doubt if you put this out for a public referendum in Connecticut, it would pass. But we don't have that mechanism in Connecticut, and that's why this is an entirely legislative process. To me, equity is um, what I call front end and back end. There's a front end piece, which is what opportunities are you going to give in this new industry? to classes of people who have been repressed by the war on drugs and targeted by it over the years, as Gary mentioned. Um, actually, going back to the 30s, of course, it was the demon drug to vilify uh, Mexican-Americans, and then the Nixon administration used it to incarcerate um, literally you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of, of young black men uh, for the last 50 years. So what opportunities are you going to give on the front end to people who have been impacted by this? And then on the back end, what are you going to do with the funds uh, that you raise? Um, and that's where, of course, every legislator's got an idea. But from an equity component, how are you going to direct some of, if not all of those funds to curing some of the impact of the war on drugs and, frankly, um, all the things that go along with that in, in terms of pumping money back into communities that have been underserved for so long. So to me, it's a front end and back end issue. We had discussed last year um, through the mechanism of an equity commission being able to address some of those issues, looking at uh, very specific census tract data, arrest data, using that actual a data driven approach to to giving opportunities on the front end and directing funds on the back end, but you will get different answers. When money's involved, you will get many different answers, and that's the challenge uh, from a legislative perspective. You're hearing State Representative Michael D'Agostino. He represents Hamden, co-chair of the General Law Committee. Also with us on Zoom, State Senator Gary Winfield. He's co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. As we talk uh, again about how there are efforts to legalize recreational marijuana and and how it'll uh, move through the General Assembly, the regular session uh, just beginning yesterday. You can join us, too. We want to hear uh, how you feel about uh, this issue. Uh, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I'm going to take uh, Mark from Hamden first. Mark, go ahead with your question. Hi, um, and good morning, and thank you all for having me on. Um, so um, a little background. I'm a healthcare provider. Um, you know, when I go into work today, two out of three of my first patients um, are immunocompromised, have chronic, um, serious medical issues, and rely on this as medicine. Um, in so doing, that's why I will be referring to it as cannabis throughout this conversation, um, because that's what it is. It's cannabis. We're not talking about, uh, you know, marijuana as a name has that racial component. So right off the bat, um, I'd like to begin there. Um, I think uh, you had mentioned several good points about the front end of things and equity. Um, what I'm seeing a lot of and what I'm hearing from, from patients um, of the existing medical system is that there is a huge monopoly. The prices for becoming a medical user are outrageous and um, and that they're not getting what they need from the current framework of dispensaries and just how the whole system is, is set up. Um, so in so doing, talking about the front end of things, I think both on the recreational and the medical side, we really have to, um, my question basically is, is what is the provision for home growing going to look like? Because legalization without home growing is really just, um, it's, it's cruel for medical users. Um, asking them to go to stores during a pandemic when they're immunocompromised and pay, you know, out-of-pocket expenses that are just, um, frankly, um, it, just too too much. Um, 
is uh, all right mark well let's have representative diagostino answer your question uh, go ahead representative and not covered by insurance either uh, i'm sure as mark was going to touch upon um i guess a few quick points to that one we are committed and we have to have a bill ready to go devoted to the medical cannabis program to make sure that if we do recreational uh, the medical will be preserved regardless of what we do recreational we're going to move forward a bill this year that uh reduces or actually a limit even eliminates fees for the medical program part of the fees mark's talking about are these recurring charges for the patients that i agree are too excessive they're not covered by insurance people rely on this medicine for their for their health care and we need to do more to reduce that so we are committed to reducing those fees we're also moving forward a bill that um, uh, uh, increases the attorney general's ability to uh, investigate the vertical integration of the growers and dispensaries to make sure that there's not price collusion and price gouging. Um, the third piece I, I'd, I'd address, and, and Mark's not going to want to hear this as our other advocates in the community, but um, home grow is likely to not be part of the solution here in Connecticut. Um, my surveys of legislators, I don't know if Gary has a different view of this. Uh, I know people feel strongly about it, but um, my sense is that if home grow were included, uh, recreational cannabis would not pass in Connecticut. Um, there's there's too many legislators who want to see a more robust regulatory environment and feel that uh, home grow is antithetical to that. You can debate that, um, uh, but but that's that's where I think we stand on home grow. Senator Winfield, did you want to add to that? Uh, I don't have much to add to that. I think uh, Rep. D'Agostino is is, is uh, on target, um, and and this is. And let me just say this on anything that we do. Uh, what your legislature looks like, where people come from, who they're interacting with has a lot to do with what you can get out of the legislature. Um, and I think the, the makeup of the legislature has suggested to us that uh, home grow, despite the conversations I've had with people and, and my recognition of the importance of the issue, uh, is not a means by which we can pass it through the legislature. You can join our conversation again as we talk about uh, recreational marijuana, 860-888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sean's calling in from Cromwell. What's your question, Sean? Hi. Yeah. Um, at risk of kind of repeating all the, you know, well-known benefits of legalizing cannabis, um, my question is, because I agree with all the, you know, previous speakers, but my question is, last time there was a serious concerted effort, last session, it got killed because of inevitable opposition from, you know, activist groups on the right, you know, religious organizations, et cetera. That's inevitably going to happen this time. You guys mentioned that we don't have the opposition. We don't have the option to vote in a referendum. It has to go through the legislature. Are there any contingencies that, you know, the legislature is going to be considering to prevent, you know, this type of effort because we know it's going to happen and there's it's it's 2021 and this needs to happen you know so uh representative diagostino uh yes there are discussions uh and some research being done now as to whether we could we could somehow um shoehorn in some sort of referendum process uh in connecticut um, and that would either be a statutory change or more likely, unfortunately, it would have to almost be a constitutional change because that's currently the only mechanism that exists for some sort of public vote on an issue. Now, um, you know, whether or not we, we proceed that way, obviously, we'd like to do this legislatively, but we are talking about contingencies. That's a great question. And uh, as I mentioned, in every other state where this has been done, that's what's what's needed to be done. And, and what I what I hope we don't have to do here, but we are looking at a at a at a, a sort of uh, backup plan. 
Uh, did House Speaker Matt Ritter, didn't he say that he wants to put this to voters through an amendment process, Representative? Yeah. He, he did. Exactly, that's exactly right. The only issue right now with the constitutional amendment process is unless you have two thirds of both chambers, you would um, it actually takes two years to get something implemented. And I, I feel like that would be far too long. So we're, we're trying to see, you know, hey, where, where are the votes on this if we wanted to do something like that under the current mechanisms? Or can we somehow uh, alter them to to uh, give us a little bit more alacrity? Uh, Senator Winfield, uh, we had someone uh, call in, uh, wasn't able to stay on the air, but she wanted to convey that, you know, she is a resident who's worried about uh, what will happen uh, if this is legalized in our state. This is a, a discussion I know uh, both of you have had with your colleagues and with other public hearings and other sessions, uh, worried about the message it sends to children, worried about people smoking on the job. How do you respond to these concerns, Senator Winfield? So I, I, I've heard um, when we've done various bills and definitely when we've been looking to do uh, the legalization of cannabis about the message we send to children. So the bill doesn't um, legalize the usage for uh, persons under the age of 21. Uh, as I'm sure you know, there have been discussions even about the age of uh, 25. Uh, so uh, in and of itself, it's not a bill that uh, allows for that usage. Um, what I think the message, if a child actually is paying attention to what we're saying, uh, is that this is uh, something that is allowed for those who are adults. Um, and I think, you know, there are lots of things that are not um, things that children can do that we allow for the usage for adults. So I, I don't know that we're saying to children, you should be using cannabis. Um, I don't know that we're saying that it's it's good for uh, the usage uh, by children. And I think by having a discussion about 21 versus 25 and the science of the brain and all of that, if we're sending a message it's that we are um, concerned about that usage by children. So I think the legislature is saying expressly that this is not something for children. So that argument doesn't um, doesn't prevail with me. I hear it. I understand it, but it doesn't prevail with me um, in terms of. Uh, what we're going to see in our state. Uh, let's not forget that other states have legalized cannabis um, and that many of the things that people have suggested are going to happen in every state as this has happened uh, have not happened. So um, that's that's um, a reality. And, and should something happen that we didn't intend, like with any other piece of legislation, I'm sure we would uh, revisit it and, and, and deal with the issues that we have. I wanted to go back to you on the question about how an equity uh, program would work in our state. Senator Winfield, we know that Massachusetts also had that uh, as a priority. I don't think that the um, it, it has turned out exactly as they envisioned. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk more about that. Yeah, so I think part of, and this has been a part of the, the discussion from the very beginning, part of the discussion has been about, so what do we do? Do we uh, take the monies from uh, the uh, the regulation and taxing of uh, cannabis and put it in the general fund and then dole it back out to programs? Do we uh, allow uh, people from the communities we uh, think have been affected to uh, participate first and, and various other things? And, and with the par first participation, we recognize that uh, you can participate first, but if you don't have the, the um, uh, resources, the monies to actually, to actually participate, that is meaningless. Um, and then, you know, what we've come to think about a little bit more as time has gone on is even the scheme of taking some of these monies, putting them into the budget and then doling them out to programs, perhaps deals with 
some individuals and maybe even uh, helps those individuals. But what happens is those individuals um, will tend not to stay where they are. They'll move. They'll go to a place where um, they can experience a better life. And that's good for the individual, but the place stays the same. And so we've seen this uh, through throughout uh, how we've dealt with uh, commun the communities we're talking about. And our hope is that we can enter a conversation uh, as we deal with cannabis about doing something different, about dealing with not only the individual, but also the places. And so that would mean that we uh, would not just do these programs that help individuals, but deal with the issues of the communities themselves. Um, there are people who are gathered, uh, uh, Jason Ortiz is one of them, who've been, uh, one, talking about this issue of equity for a long time, but who are in a direct conversation right now, and um, uh, they can speak more deeply to what that will be. And that's Jason Ortiz from uh, Cure uh, CT. We'll be hearing from him in, in just a little bit. Uh, you brought up the point about how to make licensing equitable, Senator Winfield, uh, where fees could block out small entrepreneurs. Uh, but could you talk about expungement? I know this is not a, an easy issue. Uh, it's complicated as well. And this is something that you have uh, worked on in previous sessions. Yeah, so the, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I actually think it is easy. We should expunge the records of those who... Um, <laughs> <laughs> who, who have been charged under the former scheme that we had. But um, the mechanism by which it happens is, I guess, what would make it difficult. Connecticut is, uh, as we've discovered with uh, many of the things we've dealt with, including the Department of Labor and other things, in terms of our systems by which um, we communicate or, or use computers, uh, we're not the most advanced. And so there are issues with just automatic expungement. So. Uh, in the governor's bill last year, uh, Senate Bill 16, um, and in efforts outside to just uh, fix our systems, we recognize that and we're working on that and trying to make the system, should we be able to pass the bill, as uh, instantaneous as possible. But given, um, I guess, the uh, antediluvian nature of our, our, our equipment, uh, that is not easy. But that is, that's that, that's not about what we intend to do. That's about getting the, the equipment and the resources to do it. So I think that is uh, becoming less and less of an issue. Mm. Representative uh, D'Agostino, I wanted to bring you back in the conversation. Uh, we heard from a listener on Twitter. Uh, he says cities, Connecticut cities, have long borne the cost of the misguided and racist war on drugs in terms of police overspending and resident over-incarceration. This is actually Josh Mictum, the Hartford City Councilman. He wants to know whether revenue from legalization will be equally shared with cities. Is that a conversation that would be is happening? Um. I'm hesitant just to, to, to define this as a, agree to define this as sort of a, a city suburb issue. I don't think that's the right way to, to talk about this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things we were looking at last year was using census tract data. You know, where is their poverty? Where is their incarceration? Yes, that's going to be uh, more likely in some of our urban areas. But, um, you know, when you talk about devoting some of these funds to, to where there's poverty, um, to where there have been a number of arrests, believe it or not, you also will see data uh, in, in sort of the hinterlands of Connecticut as well. So, um, which obviously have a much different demographic makeup. So I, I can envision a system where this money, um, yes, for the most part, is probably going to go to uh, more urban focused areas that have been hit the hardest, but not exclusively. And I think if we just talk about this as a, uh, if we, you know, is, is the money going to the cities or not? Um, 
that's not the right narrative for the legislature, <laughs> um, to put it to put it bluntly. Uh, it's what happened last year. There was an article to that effect, and it sort of immediately drew some fault lines that I don't think were were correctly drawn. That's why I'm, I'm hoping we'll use more of a just a straight data driven approach rather than saying, "Oh, the money's just going to go to Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport." Um, so that's uh, that's how we're looking at it. But Jason can talk about some of the further when you get him on Jason Ortiz, some of the further evolution of those discussions and how they've 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 moved forward in terms of where the money's going to go. Uh, Senator Winfield, I wanted to ask you uh, if you agree with that before we had to break. I, I do agree with that. And I think when we, the, the reason that we were looking at uh, those pieces of data is because I think it um, more clearly expresses what the actual issues are. Um, so I, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, again, this is going to be a different uh, legislative session uh, with a lot of uh, Zoom. I'm wondering how, uh, if, if one of you could just talk briefly about how residents uh, can still, uh, you know, submit testimony and make sure that their uh, concerns are raised before lawmakers as, as these different committees uh, yet again debate this. Representative DiAgostino. Uh, so you just put, people can still submit testimony. We will be having uh, Zoom hearings. I, I would note when it comes to cannabis, actually, we, we've, we had some very robust hearings last year and even the year before. So um, believe it or not, when we had the, la the hearing last year, for example, in general law, it, it didn't go all day. I mean, the advocates uh, are, are very targeted. They know exactly what to, to argue, that there's been sort of a, a maturity of the discussion at the legislature that needs to continue. Uh, but um, I, I think we'll be able to manage that actually actually very, very well uh, because there's been these now focused discussions and uh, you'll talk to Jason, for example, about some additional discussions the governor's office has been having with the advocacy groups, which I think has been very, very important outside of the legislative process. That's Representative Michael D'Agostino. He's co-chair of the General Law Committee, also with us today. State Senator Gary Winfield, co-chair of the Judiciary Committee. Thank you both for joining, and I'm sure we'll have you back again to talk about uh, this as uh, the session continues. Now, coming up, we, we're going to want to talk more about who stands to benefit from recreational marijuana. And again, how will Connecticut address this equity issue? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom, Jason Ortiz, president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association and policy director for CureCT. This is a Connecticut-based advocacy group focused on ensuring equity is achieved when the state ends its prohibition of cannabis. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Can you respond to what the lawmakers shared? And as you've been watching this process and involved in this process, uh, what's different this year than previous years? Anything? Well, around the country, cannabis bills have been passing overwhelmingly. And so I think Connecticut has always been ready to legalize in the public opinion sense, but we haven't been able to get down to the details and really build consensus on how we're going to do it. Uh, and I do think this year there's more collaboration and there's more interest and really fit figuring out what is going to be best for our communities. And as somebody that was arrested for cannabis back in the early 2000s, uh, the addressing the specific issues of folks that were impacted negatively by the war on drugs and how we will be able to operate in this space is going to be incredibly important of whether or not this program is successful. Because at this point, you know, we're talking about really stark examples of white privilege 
And I think the war on drugs and also the current makeup of the cannabis industry are just about as stark examples of white privilege as you're going to get uh, outside of what we saw happen yesterday. So there are luckily other states that have really moved on this issue and have examples of really effective policy that we'll be able to learn from and implement. So I think the timing is right. I think the makeup of the legislature is there to get it done. Uh, and I think the advocates, as D'Agostino mentioned earlier, uh, are coming with real tangible, implementable solutions. So I do think, you know, there's the right mix of interest and policy knowledge uh, to really advance this issue this year in Connecticut. If this passes this year, talk us through um, how uh, licenses could be distributed to people who may have had prior criminal records and how you'll overcome this hurdle. Well, there's the way I would do it, and then there's maybe the way that I'll end up going. But I think creating <laughs> the proper timeline so that we can do an accurate accounting of just how much damage was done by the war on drugs and allowing an equity commission to form before any licenses are given out will allow us to actually answer that question with a data-driven approach. I think we underestimate just how devastating over-policing in certain communities has really been. And what we're talking about there is selective enforcement of laws, specifically on geographic communities. And so when we're thinking about how are we gonna get folks back in the industry that were impacted, we have to know who is impacted, right? And so mm -hmm. for me personally, I do think a direct interaction with the criminal justice systems, an arrest or a conviction, or a direct family member was arrest, arrested or convicted, that should set somebody up for being able to enter what MCBA terms more broadly as equity programs. And so for us, equity programs encompass ownership, community investment of tax revenue, and also criminal justice reform. Uh, but for this particular conversation, if we look at how, for instance, medical marijuana was rolled out, there was tremendous barriers to entry in that program, and they only issued four total licenses for cultivation. So if you have a very limited number of licenses, it forces an economic competition between everyone that wants to become a legal cannabis producer. So the more licenses we're able to give to folks that want to be part of the industry, the more equitable and more impactful. And I also think a higher level of revenue will be generated if it's a more robust system. So personally, <laughs> I would like to see us use a data-driven approach as far as how much damage was done so we can accurately offer that level of economic opportunity back into those communities and then let communities of color in the urban centers and also in some of the more rural areas decide how many different licenses do we think make sense for our community. And so this will, of course, become tricky when we think about the different roles of municipal governments versus the state government. Uh, but the state can provide a, a baseline approach to who is an equitable uh, business owner and who uh, maybe is a more traditional business owner and what kind of supports we can give to make sure they're successful. Mm -hmm. We just have about uh, four minutes left, uh, Jason. I apologize. We had to shift our hour uh, with the congressman joining us at the top. But I did ask this question to Senator Winfield, and, and a listener also uh, wants to hear uh, your take on, you had mentioned there are policies in other states that are working. So when we think about um, equity in Massachusetts, uh, you know, they're, uh, it didn't work out quite as, as, well, as policymakers uh, wanted uh, when we think about it, the equity issue. So can you give us uh, quickly an idea of how this can be uh, fair in our state if this is legalized? Yeah, I think the simplest approach is to let the equity applicants go first. So we've seen in a lot of other states the rollover of the medical industry 
creates an incredible first mover advantage for those businesses. By inverting that and allowing equity applicants and smaller businesses to get a head start over the bigger players, we can actually incentivize the bigger players to help us get this whole program up and running to make sure everything makes sense so that we can all go at the same time. Because we're not starting from an equitable starting point. We got to make sure that we actually look at what happened at the medical industry and the current industry as it stands, help that industry become more equitable before we start expanding and bringing more multi-state operators from out of state to come take over a now legal industry. In Massachusetts, they put some amazing programs in place for set-aside licenses of different license types, community investment, but the timeline was off, in my opinion. So I think if we invert who actually gets to open up first, making sure that our smaller businesses get the supports they need and they're ready to roll, then we can all enter this new industry from a more equitable place, and that'll benefit not only the equity applicants, but the industry as a whole. We know that there are residents that are already, uh, again, this is a legitimate uh, career uh, in cannabis. Uh, they're licensed to grow hemp. How will this impact them? Well, I think we have a tremendous number of hemp operators that could quickly turn over into the medical industry immediately, uh, such as Lou Vega from WEPA Farms in Shelton, Connecticut, who's another member of CureCT. So we have talented people ready to operate at a larger scale. It just takes the will of the state of Connecticut, the, you know, the help of the governor to give these folks actual opportunities. So I think we can do that first. But here in Connecticut, we already have the talent, even within communities of color, to turn over into great businesses immediately. So I think we just need the opportunity uh, and we can make it happen. You don't have a crystal ball, of course, but when you look at all the other states that are legalizing around us, uh, the more uh, Democratic lawmakers uh, in the General Assembly, Lamont is on board as well, the governor. Do you think this will be the year, Jason? I do. I think we have all the pieces in place and it's just a matter of squaring a couple circles. But with the momentum of the rest of the country behind us, the talent we have in this state, and I think the leadership of some of the representatives on this call, uh, we can get it done. Well, I want to thank Jason Ortiz again, president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association and policy director for Cure Connecticut for joining us. Jason, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to where we live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>